Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Dr. Vanessa Drusket is our guest today. Dr. Drusket is Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at the University of New Hampshire and a leader in the field of team collaboration and emotional intelligence. In our discussion, we talk about what leaders need to do to create superior performing teams. This conversation dives deep into building great cultures, creating belonging and psychological safety, and the importance of emotional intelligence. Dr. Dresscat, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Don. I've been looking forward to this. Well, let's start with your background in research. Tell us who you are and what you've been studying. You bet. Currently, I am a professor at the University of New Hampshire, which is on the seacoast of New Hampshire, about, about uh, 60 miles north of Boston. But my background is in uh, psychology. So I, I currently teach in a business school, but I moved from psychology to business because of my interest in practice. So there was a point in my education and actually in my first, very first job, academic job, where I moved from just strictly sort of psychology and laboratory research to a university. I went to Case Western Reserve University for my first position. And I intentionally chose that university because they were really well known for practice and going out into the world and really making a difference. They, their identity was as radical humanists. And I really fancied becoming a radical humanist and going out into the world. And the other thing that was important to me is that they were ranked very highly in the world in their expertise in group dynamics. So they had lots of faculty who were uh, really smart about teamwork, and that was my area of expertise. I had become interested in teams, probably in high school, and just from being on teams, you know, sports teams and such. And my interest all along the way as an undergraduate and as a master's degree student and then as a doctoral student was around trying to understand why it is that some teams are so great and the experience is so awesome. You know, some of the best times of my life have been when I've been collaborating and working with a team of folks who are moving in a direction and, and we're all just at our best. And, and, and the feeling of that is such a high. I, I now know that, that, you know, we're wired for that kind of work. And, you know, our brains is through, through evolution and, and we do get endorphins that go off and we do get kind of a high when we're part of a group that's really a, a positive and we feel like we're performing at our best. Anyway, I was interested in chasing that more often. I'd also been in teams that were just depressingly bad. <laughs> and I, I was just craving knowing what the difference was. I mean, I knew I was the same person. So it couldn't be that it was me and something I was doing wrong in those bad teams. So anyway, that was my curiosity. And it continues to be my curiosity, you know, 30, 40 years later. Do you have a definition for what an effective team is? Well, the definition I use is the one that I learned from my mentor, Richard Hackman. And it's one that's used broadly in the academic world, which is that A, the team is meeting or surpassing its goals and satisfying its customers. So you're, you know, you're, you're performing well at, at what you're expected to be doing, but also that the team is remaining viable or even growing. So it's not burning itself out. And then uh, lastly, the third point is that people are actually growing and learning from the experience. 
And so it's a multi-dimensional definition, and that definition has been important to me. And what I've actually found is it's very difficult to sustain high levels of performance if you don't have that team viability, obviously, and the, and the learning. P- people like to learn. They crave learning, and it benefits the team. I heard you one time say that average teams have clear goals, clear roles, and great meetings. And I thought, wow, that that's impressive. <laughs> if that's average, that you know, that's that's pretty remarkable. I've I've worked with a lot of organizations who don't have all three of those. I can tell you that. But you're saying that that's just what it is required to be average. Is that correct? Yes. So we learned that in our study. My, the main paradigm I use, uh, which I learned from another of my mentors is to go into, the research paradigm, is to go into organizations and seek out a sample of truly outstanding teams that fit the criteria that I mentioned earlier and average teams and compare them. And so one of the things that we found is that the average teams frequently have, you know, sort of the right mechanic. They have the goals in place. They have the roles. They have meetings. And our research bears that out. Uh, but that the outstanding teams have much, much more. And primarily, they have a culture that brings out the best one another. And so moving from simply you know, knowing what you're supposed to do and having meetings that allow you to do that and you know, getting, being clear on what you're supposed to do isn't enough to bump you up at the higher levels. Most teams are average, uh, but I actually agree that those three things right there are pretty hard to achieve. Yeah, yeah, no, no question about it. So we'll we'll talk about culture in a minute, but I, I just want to ask you about some myths around effective teams or superior performing teams. What are some of those myths that you would like to crush? First myth is that you can hire for a perfect team. Yeah, some members of your audience um, may remember the dream team basketball team way back when. That, you know, if it's all about hiring. Number one question I get asked is, how do I hire for a perfect team? And this is because individual behavior stands out so clearly. We see it. And it seems to us that if we could just hire for empathy, if we could just hire for certain skills, that's a myth because you can take super empathizers, you can take super performers and put them in a team where their needs aren't being met and they're not gonna perform as well, right? And so the myth is, and this is a really hard one to shake, in part because it's also so easy to research this topic, right? And the myth is that if we had agreeable people, empathetic people, we build their individual skills, their competencies, we put them in a team, and that's gonna build a a great team. Now, so that's myth number one. Myth number two is that experience improves your learning on it makes you a better team member or better team leader. Not necessarily so, because it's people don't know how to build a good team. All right. I'm, I'm not saying that experience doesn't matter, but if you're thinking that you're going to put somebody with experience in a leadership role and think that their experience is going to make a difference, that's just not true. Well, let's talk about how we create these effective teams, these great performing teams in business and athletics and in any walk of life. What's the what's the key? If if we're saying that experience and hiring, those are a couple of the myths, how do we create these great cultures? Okay, this is a question near and dear to my heart. The first thing that you have to realize is that it, individuals, the individuals you put into a team are affected by the system that they're in. 
You can call that system. People have called it many things. I was reading an article the other day by Professor Clark at Yale. She calls it a relational system. And that the relational system impacts every interaction, every response, you know, every reciprocal interaction. Every interaction generates emotion. And that emotion either draws you closer or it drives you away. Okay. Now, if you're not paying attention to that system, and I like to call it a culture because that's what we've we've thought about. Let me define culture in just a minute. If you're not paying attention to that relational system or that culture, other people call it the container of the team, then you're not recognizing the impact of the situation on people's behavior, on their emotion, and on their... So culture, what is culture? Culture is combination of values and social norms. So norms are the operationalization of values. So it's in how we enact our values. So if our values are to be inclusive, let's say, how do we operationalize that? How do we do it, right? And so you create norms, rituals, things that you do continually that create an inclusive atmosphere, if that's one of your values. And so behavior in teams is not random. Behavior is never random. It's always influenced by the norms. Every team has norms. So let me give you one example of, of norms. Do the people in your team look each other in the eye while they're talking? Do they say hello? How do they greet one another when you, they come to the meetings? Okay. Do they? I know one team that one of my students was studying. And people were on their computers typing during their meeting. The norm was if you weren't typing, then you probably didn't have enough work to do uh, when you when you left. You weren't getting your work done. You know, you weren't busy enough. You weren't in demand enough. I mean, we can interpret it whatever we want, but people were typing during meetings. Okay, so what is that norm? What what emerges from that kind of norm? So anyway, what you do, what leaders do is they develop a culture that either brings out the best or that allows sort of mediocre performance to emerge. Let's say there's a leader who inherits a team and there are norms that are already established, but the norms that have been established are not healthy norms. They're not the norms that are going to optimize the the performance of the team. What are the things that a leader needs to do in order to correct that? The, The leader needs to do an assessment, find out what those current norms are, and reboot if they're not working for the team. So what I find is that that leaders are always afraid to do assessments in their team. They take it personally what they're, you know, when they assess how how are things going right now? You know, what are our current norms? You know, is the way we're operating working well for us? What needs to, to, to be better? What could make us stronger? How are our conversations going? You know, how are our meetings overall? You know, and, you know, there's different kinds of meetings. Some meetings are information sharing. Some meetings are problem solving. You know, which of those meetings are working well? What can we do to improve? So the first place I'd start would be with is is an assessment. The second thing is there's an awful lot of information out there on best practices around norm. So I can tell you that our own model of best norm, best practices have three buckets. So I have got three buckets in that in that model. I'll just briefly mention them here. We can elaborate later, but because I want to come back to building norms. But those buckets include how we treat one another, okay? 
how, how we interact together, how we treat one another. Second bucket is how we continually improve, how we assess ourselves, how we become strategic or not. And then the third bucket is how we engage our stakeholders. So those three buckets I find over and over again are, are filled effectively by high performing teams. So they have, they have really good norms in those three buckets. Okay, so where do norms emerge from? Norms emerge from people with status. So we know that leaders by definition have status. And so they have a lot of control over what goes on and they can stop and they can say, hey, wait a minute, how are we treating one another right now? I'm not so sure I want everyone typing on their, on their computers while we're talking to one another. Uh, let me give you an example of that. I, I remember researching, uh, interviewing team leaders once, and this was a while ago, and I've been studying remote teams for a long time. And I, I interviewed this leader and I said, well, what do you do about people multitasking on your conference calls? He said, oh, we don't multitask. You know, we, we don't do that. And I said, oh, yeah. You know, and at the time, my husband was working for IBM in a remote position. And I am telling you, I could see, you know, we were, we were, we had offices side by side at our home. And everybody was multitasking. He'd be on two computers, three phones at once, talking to side conference. And so I just said, oh, that, are you sure? And, and anyway, the leader said, yes, I'm sure. So then I had the wonderful um, experience of interviewing his team members as well. First question I asked is, do you multitask on those calls? And they said, oh, no, we have an agreement in this team that we don't multitask. In other teams, I absolutely multitask. But in these teams, our teams are real. Our meetings are really effective, really efficient, and we don't multitask. And everybody said, okay. So if you think it's impossible to create a norm like that, you're wrong. You know, our superpower as human beings, which is what uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, neuroscientist and social psychologist, says, is that our superpower is we can create environments that serve us. We're not stuck with an environment. But what you have to realize is that there are certain people in a team that hold a lot of power over, over the norms. Um, we look to others. We look to others. We're super good. Our brain is super good at assessing status. And so, Don, if you're the leader or you're the most experienced or you're the favorite child of the leader, I'm going to be watching you and seeing what you do and reading that as the norm that's okay. And if you're typing on your computer, I'm going to say, hey, Don's obviously very busy and he's quite high status. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. A question I have on changing the norms on a team is, you know, what's the downside of dictating this change? What's the upside of leading by example? What's the right mix between, you know, this is how we're going to do it and or just showing how it should be done? You don't belong if you don't have some control over what goes on in the team. You feel somewhat alienated. Control is an important social motive. And so what I recommend leaders do is that they bring some ideas and they say, okay, for example, here's the best practice model. What do you think? What would help us? And you get people's opinions in and you find out what those norms should be. Most leaders will do that and then they never visit it again. And, and this is actually the hardest part, I find, in building a culture, an intentional culture. The hard part is then reinforcing the norms that people say they want. 
So let's say we decide we're going to have a norm of everyone, here's a simple one, showing up to meetings on time or not cutting each other off or listening well, you know, whatever you, whatever you want. Well, when it doesn't happen, what are you going to do? And so what, what I recommend, what I've seen work well, is for the leader to delegate the reinforcement of those norms, the assessment and reinforcement. So two weeks after you, d- you define the norms that you want, you check in and someone else, not the leader, someone else comes up with a way of assessing what's going on. And they say, okay, how are we doing so far with our listening, showing up on time and you know, not interrupting or dominating the conversation? And you check in and you say, okay, well, if we're not doing it, then we need to uh, tweak that norm. What do we want to do? And this is the hardest part because as you know, change is hard. Let's talk about pro-social behavior and belonging because I've learned so much from you on this topic and it, it really blew my mind. Let, let's just start off by talking about what pro-social behavior is. Do you, can you define that for us? So pro-social behavior is when you support your team, you give to your team and your team members, okay? So you support them with effort and when it comes at a cost to yourself. So I, in other words, I share my very best information, even though I could use it elsewhere. You know, I, I share how I did something great and it's what allowed me to get promoted. I share it with others um, because I know they'll learn and develop from it, despite the fact that now they're going to also be great like me. Right? So it's when you do something for the team, another term that's used for a fancy term in, in, in research is citizenship behaviors. But I like pro-social behavior because you're doing something for the group and others, right? How do we get people to sacrifice their personal gain for the, the success of the team? Let me first step back and say, you cannot just create a norm that says we are going to benefit <laughs> rather than ourselves. Okay. Just There's like no magic you, wand. Come on. <laughs> you can't. Just like you can't, you know, one of the big phrases that people are using a lot these days, which is an outstanding phrase, is psychological safety, which became, you know, famous. My colleague Amy Evanson has brought that out and talked about it a lot, done tons of research on it. And it is critically important, but you cannot just dictate it as a norm, right? So how do you create these these how do you get these norms to emerge, right? How do you get this behavior? And this is where I come back to belonging. So let me say a little bit about belonging and how I came upon it. I didn't start out studying belonging or even thinking about belonging. I started out studying cultures and norms and looking at, as I mentioned to you, these three buckets of norms, which are how we treat one another, you know, how we you know, develop and learn, um, you know, strategize as a team and how we work with our stakeholders. And the model worked so well. So I went out in organizations. I spent the first part of my career researching teams, you know, looking at what differentiates outstanding and average. Second part of my career was getting called out the organizations to help us. So I wrote a couple of articles that hit the big time and all of a sudden the ring phone started ringing off the hook and people started, help us, help us. I said, cool. I went out there. I said, okay, now I'm going to learn whether or not this model works. And what I saw, first of all, was a lack of pro-social behavior over and over. So here's another myth, that the higher you get in organization, the more pro-social the behavior is going to be, all right? But, you know, I got a great quote from, that I'm going to read to you if I can find it here. 
from um, Eric Schmidt, who you know was was a CEO of, of Google, and basically he found that he was the CEO and 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 then the, the chair of Google. He says you'd assume that as you get higher and higher in a company, people would know what to do in a team. In fact, not only do they not know what to do, they're caught up in their own politics and egos. It's hard to disagree that trust is essential, but in the high stakes, big ego world of business executives, it's easier said than done, all right? So no matter where you go in organizations, no matter what level you're at, so many people are not engaging in pro-social behavior. So what happened is we would come in, my colleagues and I would come in, we'd coach the team, we'd build these norms, and the norms aren't easy to build. Again, for what I told you, this is change. You got to reinforce them. The team has to reinforce them. But when the change happened, boom, this team would cruise. And we would get asked back over and over again when leaders changed, leaders, new leaders would come in and they'd say, well, a team said we got to hire you to come in. They would onboard new members by sharing the norms with them. Okay. And the new members would be onboarded quick, quickly. And so anyway, great news. I could not figure out for the life of me why, why this was working. So after doing this for, you know, 10 years out on the road all over the world, um, and mind you, in a lot of teams that met virtually most of the time, I stepped back and I went back to the literature. And this is where I started coming and saying, what's going on here? And I bumped into this research in psychology on the idea of belonging. So let me give you the formal definition of belonging. It's that you are genuinely accepted in a team where you are known heard, understood, and supported. Huge. Turns out it's an innate social need, innate need. It's a primal need. It is a social need that social psychologists have talked about for a long time. It is the social need that rules them all. So other social needs like the need for control, which I talk about a lot in teams, other social needs for like the need to vet your understanding of the situation your need to feel a sense of of worth, social worth in the team, your self-enhancement. All of this serves the need to belong. And as best as psychologists and um, others, evolutionary psychologists and social, social psychologists can reason this, is that when we lived in tribes, which by the way, we lived in tribes for 54 million years, First, as primates, which is critical. Okay? So, um, you know, in indigenous people living in groups, if you were ever kicked out of the team, you didn't belong. If you were kicked out of the tribe, the group, whatever you want to call it, you were dead. It turns out that the moment we enter a group, and even before we do, our brain is scanning or anticipating whether we're we're entering a group where we feel we belong or not, whether we need to be cautious, whether we need to be careful, whether we need to be on guard, if you will, right? And um, uh, the biggest threat we have these days are social threats. People who treat us as if we're unimportant, as if we're invisible, as if we're not wanted or we don't belong. And that kind of threat gives us social pain, 
pain that gets triggered in the same part of our body as physical pain. Our need to belong, our need to be socially accepted, our need to be appreciated by others and cared for by others is not something we can outthink. It's a primal need. And, and so what happens is that when we're in a situation where we don't feel we're appreciated and cared for, and we don't feel like people are, are giving us our turn and validating us, we don't perform at our best. We, we live in this constant state of a threat, semi-threat, waiting for the ball not to be passed to us. And I'll tell you, your brain does not miss that stuff. It does not miss the brain as a hair trigger. You know, our emotional brain takes in 11 million bits of information per second. We are conscious of 40 bits of it. So our emotional brain is picking up on those nonverbal statements, those nonverbal shoulders, you know, those nonverbal not looking you in the eye, the nonverbal turning away when you're talking, the nonverbal signals that you're somewhat invisible or your ideas aren't so good or, you know, what have you. How do leaders create this sense of belonging? That's the first question. And then the second question is, when somebody has been excluded, maybe repeatedly excluded, how do we bring them back? So a recent publication in my field showed that slightly over 60% of people in organizations report having been excluded or ostracized or invisible. And it is, there is so much research coming out right now about how uncivil we are to one another, et cetera, et cetera. So the first thing I want to say is this is happening all the time. And honestly, I believe it's one of the reasons why we're having this great resignation right now. But that's a whole other conversation. The second thing is you cannot manage your own inclusion. You can't force your inclusion into the group. So it's what I have called an intractable problem in a team. So you can feel your exclusion, your ostracism, your invisibility. And you can't do anything about it yourself. What the research shows is that when you try to do something about it, when you try to put yourself back in, uh, first, we ingratiate and it just doesn't work. And second, we, we start to behave badly. We actually lose our ability to control our emotions when we feel invisible. A ton of bad behavior in teams, a ton of it, I hypothesize, is rooted in, in subtle ostracism that comes at me, all right? So the people we blame, the bad team members, often are those who have been excluded for one reason or another. Okay, so how do you build it? The important question that you asked. You have to create norms. And this is the thing. You, you, you can't, it comes, it, it, it comes from the group itself, all right? Another reason for that is one more a piece of evidence, a research showing that if you're in a team and even one person treats you poorly, like you're, or ostracizes you, or excludes you, or gives you the cold shoulder, your brain tells you the whole team feels that way about you. That's how hypersensitive the brain is to this issue. Keep in mind, it would save your life if you caught it early. And so it's hypersensitive and it catches you. So this is another reason why it's got to be in the norm. Okay, so what are the norms? Let's come back to the definition of what is belonging. All right. It's where you are genuinely accepted in a community where you are known, understood, 
felt and cared about, right? And so how do you create that environment? Well, what I've learned is back to my three bucket model, all right? So uh, number one is people have to feel known. And until I know you, I don't value you. Until I know what you bring, I can't affirm your social worth. Matthew Lieberman, again, I'm going to mention him because his research is so exciting. He's a social neuroscientist. He's from UCLA. He says people crave the positive evaluation of others to almost an embarrassing degree. So we want to feel a sense of worth in this team. All right. When you're in a team, self-worth is defined as social worth. So your self-worth is how much the team values you. So the first part of the norm is we have to get to know you. We have to know, we have to value you. So we have to have norms about how we're going to respect, understand, communicate value. And again, back to getting to know one another. And I can talk to you about the things I've done in teams that have helped people get to know one another, if you want to come back to that. Yeah. I mean, give give us an example of, of an exercise you've done to do that, because I think that you know, will be very helpful for people. Sure. So regardless of what the needs are of the team, I always start off a coaching session with a team with a gallery walk exercise. And this can be either an online meeting or a face-to-face meeting. Gallery walk is where everyone's got a big sheet of paper or everyone's got a a, um, PowerPoint slide and they answer certain questions about themselves. All right. So these questions can be, they can be personal questions, which some groups want to know, you know, where are you from? Where are you born? What's your background? Where else have you worked? Um, They can also be really about the task itself. What do you like most about this job? What do you like most about the team? You know, what what are you most frustrated about? So you come up with a list of questions and I would say, let's ask the team what they want to know. And people answer those on the flip chart. And then we walk around Or we have people um, individually present them and we learn, we start to peel away the onion, what I call it. Now, I have to to acknowledge here something really important, which is one of the great paradoxes of teams, um, is that you have to honor individual needs as much as team needs. And there are an awful lot of individuals who don't want to share their personal stories at the workplace. And so you've got to find a balance, you know, and you've got to say, all right, nothing personal here. In some teams, some teams want to know, you know, do you have a partner? Do you have children? You know, any of these things. The better we get to know each other, by the way, the more we trust one another. There is so much research on this. I mean, I, I you can't contribute anymore to that research. How do you build psychological safety? By getting to know one another. All right. Um, how do you build a communal versus an exchange relationship? By self-disclosing a little bit. And reciprocating that self-disclosure and realizing that there, there's, there's no harm done in that case. So this is fundamental. And by the way, it's even more fundamental in online teams. I, I want to share something that we used to do at a company that I, I was an owner and we sold it about six years ago. But um, we created a roster. So we only had 45 employees or so, but we created a roster with everybody's photo and then we asked them questions about themselves. What's your favorite food? What's your favorite movie? Where were you born? What's the furthest you've traveled you know, from the place you were born? The, questions like that. So more personal questions. And if somebody didn't want to answer one of them, they didn't have to. But then we handed it to new employees on their first day of work. And 
they've instantly felt a connection to, you know, the other, the other employees because, oh, you know, you like the big Lebowski. I love the big Lebowski. I love the Coen brothers. So they, they started to create these connections on day one. Another thing that we would do in the interviewing process is we would ask people what their favorite candy is. And they would think, you know, if we knew we were going to hire them, we would ask, what's your favorite candy? And they would think, oh my gosh, this is some kind of, you know, like psychological question. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. So if, if they said, uh, I like Hershey's Kisses on their first day at work, they had a bowl of Hershey's Kisses on their desk. Oh, that is so and beautiful. I love I it. I didn't know what we were doing was building a sense of belonging immediately, but what you know, it, it turns out, yeah, it turns out that that's what it was. And, and it was, it was one of the favorite things that people uh, would say about the onboarding processes. Like, I didn't know why you asked us about candy and I loved seeing who my colleagues were. And then one other thing that we would do is we would have every employee, so it's only 45 employees, send an email to the new employee on the first day telling them how excited they were to be a part of the team. Oh, that's so great. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. That practically brings tears to my eyes. It's so uncommon. <laughs> it's so uncommon. So <laughs> I, I didn't know. Organized, I, you know I didn't, what organizations would do that kind of thing? I didn't know that that's what we were do, what we were doing, but it sounds like we were we were creating some sense of belonging for our new employees. And I know that it worked for our experienced employees, our veterans as well, because when they would see their roster as well, they would they they had those connections too, and. You know, oftentimes, you know, we'd have salespeople and programmers, very different personalities, but they would find ways in which they could connect. Yeah. So look, I want to, I want to just follow up on that. Say, here's the dilemma. It's well and good for, for, for us right here to, to smile about that and nod our heads and say how oh, the great outcome, uh, the great outcomes that, that emerge from that kind of, of familiarity. But most leaders I talk to think it's a waste of time. Mm. So I always remember this one, the VP of a Fortune 50 company who I was brought in to help coach. He, he basically said to me, I pay my people an awful lot of money. Why do I have to do this stuff? They're lucky they have jobs. I never needed this. <laughs> and I, so here, here, there is the question. So let me ask you that, Don. Uh, here where your answer is, and I'll give you my answer. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to take time if we don't have the time to do these things in organizations today? Look, it, my role as a leader is to try to get the best performance out of my employees. And if getting to know them and having them know each other is the way to get the best performance out of them, th that's exactly what I'm going to do. And you're, you're, you, we talked about this earlier, pro-social behavior is thinking about the team's results over my individual results. And if I have a connection, if I know the names of my employees' children, if I've met their children, if I know where my employees want to send their children to school, you better believe that I'm going to give everything I can to help this team succeed. And I want that, I want those connections among my employees because they know if Alex is going to send his kids to private school, that we need to succeed as a team. I, I don't think we answered the question 
how do we bring somebody back who has been excluded or who doesn't feel that sense of belonging on the team? So for example, we actually have a survey that we use that measures these three buckets of norms, which by the way, is what we call our, our team emotional intelligence model. And one of the questions in the survey, and you don't have to use the survey to do this, to just put it on a survey monkey or ask, you could say, is everyone treated with respect in this team? And then you look at the variance across that. Is everyone included? Does everyone feel cared about this team? And you get responses. And inevitably, you find, and this is true in every team I've ever worked with, that some people feel more included and some people feel less included. Some feel people feel more cared about and some people feel less. The greater the variance, the bigger the problem. And as you know, people who are, you know, people of color, women, you know, people who are underrepresented are often the ones that are are not as feeling as cared about or heard or as included. And it is impossible for them to push their way, as we know, right? So you bring it up and you have a conversation about it. And you say, look. Some people are more included and some people are less. What are we going to do about it? Do we ask their forgiveness? I don't think you have to. I mean, I could see, you know, emotionally available leaders might do that. <laughs> but you don't have to. What you have to do is say, what are we going to do moving forward? And you have to have a reason for changing, right? So that's another thing. If you're going to ask your team to change its norms, why? Right? Well, why? Because it's COVID. We're doing a reboot. We're meeting virtually now. These are all great reasons to reboot right now. We have, um, we, we can up our game. If we can support one another, if we can build a culture of collaboration, I often call it a culture of collaboration. What I really mean is a culture of belonging. We're going to create a cult- culture of, of collaboration where we have each other's back, where we share information. You know, you can't have all the information that you, that you need on your own anymore. We need one another. You said that we take in 11 million pieces of information every second. I believe you said in the past, you said that 10 million of those pieces of information come through our eyes. Yes. Which to me suggests that this is the reason why our nonverbal communications are so important. Yes. You you may or may not agree with that, but it, it it certainly suggests that. With that in mind, how the heck do we do this in a virtual environment? How do we create this sense of belonging? How do we create or encourage pro-social behavior? This seems like a huge, huge challenge. What's your response to that? My first response is, thank goodness we've got this virtual technology that allows us to at least see each other's faces, all right? Used to be on phones. We can see each other's faces and we can connect if we do it intentionally. It's going to be awkward. You know, there are many people, including our mutual friend, Doug Lenick, who says, look at the, look at the camera. So people know you're caring about them. Right. And I agree with that, but it's hard to do. So some great research coming out of Boston college right now is that we have to have predictable times that we get together. There has to be a cadence to how often we come together and, and, and we talk and, and, um, and we have to be careful of our, of our, of our, Nonverbals. People listen to voice tone. All right. It's not just the eyes, um, but um, you know the brain. The brain picks up on. The brain believes nonverbals more than it believes what we say. So how are we going to use our voice tone? 
how are we going to use what we've got available? If we do it intentionally, what's working? What isn't working? Let's evaluate it. Let's talk about it. Let's say, how do we tweak our norms given this? To summarize our conversation, advice, your advice to leaders who want to create more effective teams, what are three or four things that they should be doing? Okay. First, they need to recognize that team building is about building a culture. Yes, you need to help build the skills of the individuals, but that's not going to build your team. You need to build a culture. It currently has norms. Your team has norms. You want to assess those norms and say, are these working for us? You want to assess the norms with your team. That's number two. You want to give your team control over those norms. What do you need? What do we need from each other in order to build a team where we are synergistically supporting one another? And that's number three. You need to recognize that belonging matters, that people want to feel genuinely accepted, heard, known, felt, understood and cared about in that environment. They're not going to articulate that to you. It's an unconscious primal need. There's no doubt about it. We have that need. You need to take those actions and you need to infuse that in the norms yourself if they don't. That's going to create the culture. And culture is a system of values and norms. And I just want to repeat, you already have a culture. Is it serving you well? Assess it. Do a reboot. Assess it and build the environment that's going to work best for your team. Dr. Dresscat, thank you for sharing your time with us and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. In our next episode, I talk with Paul Hanley about China's growing global leadership. Paul served as Special Assistant U.S. National Security Advisors Condoleezza Rice and Stephen Hadley. He was the White House China Director on the National Security Council under former Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and he currently holds the Maurice R. Greenberg Director's Chair at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Paul and I discuss what China's rise as a global leader and superpower means to the West. We talk about the future of China's President Xi Jinping, and Paul shares his thoughts on what President Xi's recent no-limits agreement with Russia means to the war in Ukraine. That episode will be released April 5th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GeoPro in London. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius. <laughs>